This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back, everybody. This is SiriusXM's Bay Area Ventures. We're broadcasting live from the Wharton San Francisco campus. I'm your host, Doug Collum, and I'm here along with my co-host, Irina Yen. So jumping right into our second hour, we're joined now by our second guest, Doug Rickett, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Payjoy. Um, and instead of me trying to elaborate what Payjoy does, Doug's here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here with you. Great. So maybe just start. What is it? What is Payjoy? Yeah. So Payjoy is a three-year-old fintech startup company. And our focus is really on helping people in emerging markets worldwide get access to mobile phones and finance. So access to mean meaning like it's an infrastructure thing you have to put up cell towers and so forth or it's it's different it's a finance thing oh, right actually i'm talking about the actual mobile handset okay so the handset itself not the data not the cell towers mm-hmm. but really focused on the issue of affordability of mobile handset mm-hmm. so people particularly moving from kind of first generation basic phones to the modern smartphone And what inspired, I mean, you have a really interesting journey, entrepreneurial journey that led you to this. I was wondering if you could share that with our listeners um, that led you to found Payjoy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It goes back to a few experiences I had before Payjoy. Mm -hmm. After college, I joined the Peace Corps, which sent me to Africa. Mm -hmm. So back up. So where are you you from? (laughs) Yeah. Where's home? Yeah, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in the South Bay. Kind of your typical computer nerd in love with technology. Um, followed my dream to MIT, did uh, computer engineering there, wow. and met a bunch of international students um, and started kind of wondering what's going on out there in the world. And wow. so that led me after college to Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's an interesting yeah. jump from yeah. MIT into the Peace Corps, really, yeah. And what were you doing in the Peace Corps? What function, I guess, and what country were you in? Yeah, so they sent me to West Africa. Mm-hmm. I taught high school for a year wow. and then college for a year. Well, what did you teach while you were there? Uh, kind of what you'd expect stuff leading up to computer engineering. I did, um, math and physics at the high school and then, um, uh, math and electronics at the college. Wow. That's amazing. So like most Peace Corps program, that was, that was a two year thing. That's right. And, um, I mean, you still haven't really answered the question. Why did you, why did you jump off to do that? Was it just a life experience? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you look back and reflect, yeah. <laughs> like like what the hell possessed me back then? I mean, was that what? a was it a good move? Was it the, did you achieve the motivations that you had in mind? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, as far as what sent me there, um, it's funny. So I did computer engineering, bachelor's and then master's, but my master's project was actually not engineering; it was education, mm-hmm. and it was uh, a summer school for high school girls to come to MIT, live there, and do engineering. And this was coming from I'd been in the class and looked around in my senior microcontroller class and saw this massive gender disparity. And I had really enjoyed working with a bunch of MIT uh, outreach, educational outreach programs, including one that used to have a residential program. And I thought, man, what if we had a bunch of aspiring young women come here and live on campus and do engineering? And so that was my master's project at MIT, wow. and that was addressing a social issue rather than a purely technical one. Mm-hmm. And I found that really rewarding. And really the next thing on my mind was wanting to educate myself about what's going on out there in the world internationally. Mm-hmm. So I remember the, the final day I handed in my thesis that night, I went and 
went online and applied to Peace Corps. Wow. Wow. That How was, you, uh, yes, bold. <laughs> How did you think of why the Peace Corps like had, you know, you mentioned there were a lot of international students at MIT and was that something inspired or you'd done some research? Like where can I really make the most impact, I guess, given the, given your passion for, for change and you had knowledge you wanted to share? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny, actually, I had a girlfriend in college who was from Africa. And so that was kind of giving me some uh, secondhand direct awareness of, whoa, there are parts in the world that are completely different from anything I've ever known. Wow. Um, and then uh, I had I had spent half a year in Spain. And so, you know, Western Europe is, um, you know, relatively much more similar to the U.S., mm-hmm. but really just um, really for me, it was wanting to educate myself. And so that's that's what Peace Corps gave me. Wow. Good for you. That's... So then you came back to the U.S. So at some point, the Peace Corps program ended. And as it ended, then what was it you're thinking at that point? You wanted to jump back into the world of, in this case, was it FinTech? Was that your first company? Or how? Tell me about your your, your previous um, company experience. Yeah. Uh, well, I I actually came back, uh, worked at Google again, still kind of going back oh, to my wow. tech side. Um, yeah. You know, kind of the the dream of technology at that point. This was uh, 2005. Now, in coming back was coming back to the Bay Area. From uh, yeah, the coming Bay back area? from Africa, uh, yeah. moved back to the U.S. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, Google is this pinnacle of technology at that point, really exciting. Down on the Mountain View, Mountain View campus. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I was very fortunate to work on Google maps and see that go from kind of this early thing to become the The standard. Yeah. Yeah, It was was really fun. And it was, you know, it was things I could talk about with my friends and my mom. I could point to it. Look, you know, that's, that's what I do. What what year was that? This was, uh, Oh five to Oh nine. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was an engineer and manager at Google maps, um, Really enjoyed it there. I worked on combining my interest in international <laughs> issues and technology. So about uh, most of 2008, I worked on this project uh, aimed to complete the international globe, the global map. And so if you look back in 2007, all the online maps, Microsoft, MapQuest, Yahoo, Google, we were basically U.S., Europe, Japan in any mm-hmm. detail. And if you went to look at Brazil or uh, India or Africa, <laughs> Africa, you know, basically like you'd be lucky to have the capital city as a dot. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so we were, we had this really fun kind of skunk works project. I think, um, you know, probably Larry or Sergey or somebody said, here's $50 million, go do something with Africa, come back and show us what you built next year. And we managed to, um, finagle our way into 5 million of that 50 mm-hmm. and <laughs> had this, you know, really fun project going, um, completing the world map, wow. focusing on Africa. Um, but, but globally. And so we were, both in-house digitizing the map. We had internal tools using existing paper maps, using satellite imagery. Uh, We were sending people around the world with GPS devices. Uh, It was a a lot of fun. And for me, trying to combine this interest in international affairs with Mm -hmm. completing the map. I'd say the next step for me beyond that... um, So you left Google at 2009, you say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then where? Yeah, so (laughs) then I jumped back to Africa. Oh, and I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> maybe this is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like my path is zigzag. Yeah, but, it sounds like yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, it's funny. I remember teaching in Africa first, and it was so resource starved. And you know, mm. if the power went off at three p.m., everybody would everybody would just call it quits and go home, and like just man, give up. It's so hard. Yeah. yeah. And then the opposite. I remember being at Google like at midnight one night, fastest computer you could imagine. I'd walk over to the snack bar. It's full of all the snacks. Go yeah. to the you know. Stationary. It's got five thousand pens of every color. A what a contrast! Different. What a different. contrast! Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, it was this super research resource rich environment, 
but there was something during that time that started this kind of discordant note in the back of my mind. And that was, uh, while I was at Google, I would take some friends, uh, some colleagues from Google, later my wife, before we were married, uh, to visit Africa. Mm. And on the second trip there, I think it was with my wife, the family I had first spent time with in Peace Corps for language training, uh, one of the kids there had an accident mm. and had actually lost a foot um, in a farming accident. And so um, as I learned later, um, this family is actually five miles from a hospital. Uh, there's an ambulance at the hospital, but they have no mobile phone. They can't call the ambulance. Oh. So because of that, there's a kid walking around with one foot in Africa today. Mm-hmm. So that was this kind of tragedy that I didn't really know what to do with at the time, but it, it stuck in my mind. Yeah. And so from that trip, you know, I went back, back to Mountain View, back to the super every resource you could ever want. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, we finished the world map. We did every city over 100,000 population by 2009. That's amazing. But, you know, that family wasn't using Google Maps. They didn't even have a phone. Right. So there was kind of this note in the back of my head. Something wasn't quite right. I wanted to get more involved somehow with something that would could reach those people. Mm-hmm. And about this time, a good friend of mine came out of Stanford Business School uh, with a solar design company. And it was my first exposure to social enterprise, to the whole concept of social mm-hmm. enterprise, like business with a mission. Mm-hmm. And something just clicked because a lot of what I got out of Peace Corps was an appreciation for the value of private sector development. You know, like if you look at mobile phones, it wasn't government, charity, NGOs. Oh, sure. I mean, I think there's absolutely a place for that stuff. You know, every orphan should have a home. Everyone in the world should have clean water, yes. whether they can pay for it or not. Yeah. But I was just so impressed by like technology business, you know, for mm-hmm. economic development. Yeah, right. So along comes this, my friend doing this social enterprise and it just clicked. It was like, this is it. This is getting people access to electric light and, and power for phone charging. Right. There's a real heart to it. While at the same time it's run as a business. So right. it's going to go serve a million customers and then it can go on to 10 million, a hundred million, right. you know. And, what what and, was the name of that company? Uh, this is D-Light, uh, okay. a solar company. Here, here in the Bay Area? Uh, they originally started out of Stanford, mm-hmm. um, and what happened was my friend went to China in 2008 to set up their manufacturing. His co-founder went to India to set up sales. And uh, when I caught up with them at the end of the year, it was just really incredible to hear how this thing was taking off and wow. see a real social enterprise working and, and helping people. So the light bulb went off for you like, oh, exactly. they're not mutually exclusive. I yeah. can actually combine it. This is the channel through which I can um, execute against a mission in the context of a business. So both sides of the, I guess, equation have benefit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so my wife and I decided we wanted to uh, help bring them to Africa. And so actually we told her dad, uh, we're quitting our jobs. We're getting married. We're moving to Africa. Wait, what? <laughs> yep. I mean, get all three of them over with at the same time. Right? There's that cartoon head shaking like, I, I, you know, when they have yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that was my first startup company mm-hmm. was a wholesale import export distributor of and this solar is products. Delight? Yeah. Oh, really? So, well, no, so this was my own company. Um, so we would tonight. purchase the solar products that my friend's company was oh, manufacturing yeah. in China. Mm-hmm. We would import shipping containers to Africa, clear customs, set up the wholesale distribution, uh, supplying retailers. And who funded that? Who funded I did. it? It was I did. your I, own I, import yeah. and export company. Yeah, I Google funded it out of yeah. my, my savings. Yeah. Um, so basically my wife and I took our savings and moved back to West Africa and, wow. and uh, did... Solar logistics. What year was that? About a year. That was uh, 2009, 2010. Okay. And how did that go? Uh, it was a crazy experience. <laughs> I mean, unlike, you know, I mean, up until that point, I was, uh, you know, computer nerd, engineer, uh, Google, MIT type. 
and now I'm like a CEO clearing <laughs> shipping, oh, I'm clearing oh. shipping containers in the dusty port, you know, and right. moving stuff around. It was it was really crazy, but uh, a really awesome experience. So I'm curious. We learned a lot. Does yeah. your wife have a similar background in engineering? And I mean, was she also at Google? No, no, she uh, she's done uh, a lot of communications work. Okay. But she was equally enthused about this notion of let's let's do import export to bring solar power to Africa. You know, it, it was something we both believed in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's there's nothing like waking up in the morning and believing in what you're going to do that day. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's neat. So that takes us. I mean, so that was yeah. good. That was a great. That was instructive. It was a lot, another life experience for you, Doug. And then and then what happened? So then you. Yeah. So we're actually getting closer to Pedro. I'll. So after about a year, we were basically acquired over to the solar company. Mm-hmm. Um, I came on to run uh, product engineering for the solar company. And I, I wanted to look at this uh, problem I'd seen on the sales side where we would go pitching um, a solar product to somebody, to a family. Let's say it's a $200 solar kit. Mm-hmm. It's going to light a two-room house. And they would say, oh, this is awesome. I love it. It's modern electric light. I'm using, you know, candles or kerosene lamps, some kind of fire-based lighting. I want to move into the future, you know, electric light. Yeah. I just can't afford $200 today. I'm used to spending $5 a week on um, candles, wood. Yeah. Yeah. Wood, yeah. whatever, kerosene. And, yeah. uh, and we would say, well, it'll pay for itself in only uh, 40 weeks. That's less than a year. And they'd still say, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I just, I don't have the Doesn't money today. Sense, yeah. 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 So the challenge I was looking at was how could we change our product to fit the customer instead of asking the customer to fit themselves to our product? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So how could we make our product $5 a week? And so my idea was to put a mobile communication chip into the solar system that will then go online over the mobile data network, mm-hmm. talk to our cloud servers, check if the customer has paid a bill. And if not, the system shuts off. Mm-hmm. And so... What that lets us do is have weekly billing or monthly billing, let people pay in these small recurring installment payments. And because it shuts off, that's why people will keep paying. It's and a then, direct incentive. Yeah. 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 And then most people pay most of the time and the whole thing works. Um, so that And you saw traction. So people, I mean, there's one thing to pay lump sum 200 bucks, but then you get into installment finance and now they're thinking, I don't have to pay 200. It's five bucks a week. Right. So it's more manageable. And I'm getting to a much better result after 40 weeks. Yeah. And you know something really interesting? This is kind of like what happened at a scale much larger in the U.S., but you could even make it $4 a week. We could finance your solar system at $4 a week over, you know, 50 weeks. uh, And now you say it's cheaper and it's better tomorrow. I'm sure there's Uh, a psychology involved. There's like a an inflection point about how much, I mean, just going through the the emotional reaction Mm -hmm. to five bucks a week or four bucks a week. At some point you're ready to make that jump as a consumer. sounds like you found it. Yeah. So that was really exciting. We launched that with, um, we launched it in 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, And since then it's turned into this massive uh, pay as you go solar industry. Is it still around? Is your business still around? The import export? So no. So my import export business, we were, uh, Basically, acquired, merged it all into the into parent the company. Into, oh, into and the, the solar Dubai. company. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's um, so, a happy ending. Yeah. Well, so they took over their own distribution yeah. for West Africa and everything. Um, but on the on the product side, it was just really exciting for me to see it, the power of finance in mm-hmm. getting people access to technology. So that left a really strong impression on me, and that um, basically was the same inspiration for Payjoy. A few years later, 
Um, I'd done another couple startups and went to business school. Mm. And then in 2015, at the start of 2015, came back to this idea of finance uh, over time for some kind of technology for people to afford technology. Mm. And we could do this not just for solar, solar systems in Africa, right. but for any electronic device, mm. anything in the world, smartphone, TV, laptop, yeah, microwave, right. dishwasher. Yeah. Um, that was really the exciting thing that as I looked into it more, I got more and more excited and said, how come nobody's doing this? Right. It seems like a no brainer. Right. What kind of struck a chord with you is really, um, understanding and seeing the power of finance and how that could enable access to technology. And you had mentioned earlier about, you know, when you were in West Africa, seeing that child who had lost his foot simply because the distance between where he was and the hospital, while it was not so far, is because they couldn't even call it just to get an ambulance. Um, so, you know, fast forward back to the the beginning, the seeds of, of Pageway, when you're thinking about the power of technology and how it can um, enable access to technology. Where were you at at that point? As you, as uh, as it seems like the idea for Pageway starting to form. Yeah. So, start of twenty fifteen, we were looking at, you know, how come people aren't doing this for all consumer electronics worldwide? Yeah. Who's we? Is are you and your wife at this point? Uh, you know, my wife had another good career going on by then. But, yeah. Um, myself and. Uh, friends who I was in touch with who actually ended up becoming my co-founders okay. later. Yeah. And it's funny when I look back, I was talking with them, you know, even Along in 2014 way, yeah. about this idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I interrupted. So go forward. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, so the, we, we, uh, we decided to start with the smartphone. Mm-hmm. That's really the number one hottest piece of electronics that a billion people have their eye on the smartphone saying, this is the year I'm going to get myself that, that smartphone and enjoying the modern world. Mm. Can you pause here and maybe lay out kind of the state of play in the, in this market that you're thinking about in 2014 and 2015? How big is that market? Is it a domestic market you were focused on or really more of a, you know, underdeveloped country type focus, those markets? How, how did, how were you thinking about it at that time? Yeah. You know, actually I, I didn't have it figured out. Yeah. And I remember I did this interesting uh, accelerator program called village capital um, had a bunch of people starting companies at the very early stage. Where is this? It's in the U.S. They run programs throughout the U.S. I okay. did their um, like fintech. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it here in the Bay Area or accelerator? Just... Uh, they hold it in different locations. Okay. They had some mm-hmm. meetings here, and I think one in Colorado or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it, it was really fun because they had you know it was like ten of us each starting a company in the you know first year essentially, and uh, giving our pitches, giving our stories, talking yeah. to each other, and critiques and advice and i remember this this one other guy uh you know we were like halfway through the program and i I gave my pitch my elevator pitch and my present my slide presentation and he just tore it up afterward ripped it up to shreds i was like you know you have to get your story straight is this u.s or is this international like you're pitching half of everything and it's it's not clear like what is this thing going to be and so Based on that, that was a teachable moment. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. No, this was great. I mean, seriously, a lot of the best advice yeah. I've ever gotten has been from other yeah. founders, and this yeah. is fantastic. And uh, I, I owe this guy so much. Um, <laughs> Thank you, may have another. Yeah. Right. Right. yeah. Uh, and so, based on that, I decided it's U.S. We're starting with the U.S. Uh, initially, I had looked into this thing. I'd flown to India and spent a week mm-hmm. in India researching, like going into mobile phone stores and seeing if there was finance available, and there, there was not. Mm. Um, but, you know, the story of, of me uh, as one guy with an idea in San Francisco, I'm going to go solve phones in India. That yeah. seems pretty ridiculous. <laughs> um, and it's, it's interesting. Um, it's something that we've, we've come full circle to or maybe 
180 mm -hmm. uh, in that now the focus is definitely international. But I think we had to start here. And there's another parallel to this, which is um, I had a, a great, uh, I had an early advisor who had been one of my lecturers at, at Stanford Business School mm -hmm. um, who said, you know, this, this sounds like a great idea. And like, I see this early technology work you've done. Why don't you go sell this technology to other people and like license it as a technology service? That's, you know, much more interesting financially. You can get a technology multiple instead of a finance company lending multiple or something. Yeah. And that's also what we're doing now. We're, we're partnering with with these massive companies now and doing technology licensing. Oh. But early on, I think we had to start locally and do it ourselves as a proof of concept. And so, so local, the local focus then was in the, in the Bay Area or the United yeah, States? Uh, both. So actually, we, the first thing I did, I, I had this crazy idea, um, had my brother offered to help me get it off the ground. He's a software engineer. Well, just for clarification, mm -hmm. I mean, you're focusing on the market of people in the United States who can't afford to buy a cell phone, a smartphone. Is that the idea? And the idea is how, how can we enable them to do that using this model that you 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 encountered in connection with solar panels? Yeah. So that was the notion. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And in the U.S., uh, you know, 80% of the population, probably most people listening and, and all of us in this room, um, if we walk into an AT&T or Verizon store, we can get a phone, no problem. We can get a plan. We can pay for our phone over time, mm. but there is a population of underserved, underbanked. And that and that phone, that cost is, I know it's expensive. It's yes. like, what, 500 to 1,000 bucks for a, a stupid phone. Yeah. And then you've got the plan that goes with it, right? right? So it's a big bundle of cash you have to put on the counter. And inaccessible to many. Yeah. We don't okay. talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And the in, so an interesting thing is even in the U.S., we have this minority population, maybe 20 to 30% of the total um, who... Either they could be immigrants to the U.S. or they could be just Americans without much credit history. When they walk into that phone store, they do not qualify for an installment plan. Wow. And if they want a Samsung Galaxy S9 or whatever, not gonna yeah, happen. You, you have eight hundred dollars cash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so they're stuck. Uh, they basically at that time they were stuck on a feature phone. Now they're on a, a really low end phone. Mm -hmm. um, Flip phone. You know. Yeah. yeah. And so. Basically, that's where we started with in the U.S. is for people to, for them to afford a, a quality phone. And our key technology that we started with was the ability to lock a phone. Mm -hmm. So it cannot be, so in case of non-payment, it becomes unusable. Mm -hmm. uh, the same way we did with the solar, the lights would turn off if you don't pay. Now we're doing it with phones. If you don't pay for your phone plan, your phone becomes unusable. And this is the handset itself. Mm -hmm. So not like your service goes out, but you could just get another SIM card from another provider. This yeah. is the handset itself. And that has that technology has to be strong enough in locking the phone that that lock cannot be easily broken right. to be strong enough for financing to put real money behind it. Wow. So that's how we started in the U.S. And actually, I, I went to a little store in, in Redwood City, just um, about a mile from my house in this little Mexican neighborhood, and talked to the owner wow. um, for an hour, you know, one time, and then... Um, uh, my brother and I worked on some code for a month or two. My brother said he gave me he'd give me three months of just kind of free work without pay yeah. to try and get this thing started. We got to month two, and I realized, oh, holy shit! Like, uh, you know, we got to get going. Do it next month. We have to launch something next month, yeah. or else he's gone and the whole yeah. thing shuts down. And so we did it. We wow. uh, launched something, and I, you know, I basically went back to that little shopkeeper, that little store owner. And what uh, you're launching is a software installation that goes on a smartphone. 
that shuts it down for non-payment. Is that the idea? Yeah, that yeah. Okay. combined with a, a web uh, customer uh, management platform mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so people can come and register um, oh, and yeah. kind of tie the whole system together so right. they can make payments over time and it records the payment and then their phone is talking to right. our cloud yeah. server right. and controlling the phone. So we launched that in the U.S. in uh, May 2015. Mm -hmm. Starting with this little shop in Redwood City? Yeah. Yeah, really? That's yeah. That's amazing. That's your target market. I mean, the people who are underserved, whatever market, you know, in the U.S. That's interesting. So how did it go? Yeah, this is like a real beta test. Yeah. Right? You walked in and say, here's here's the software and let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really exciting. And what we found over time was we saw a lot of Mexican immigrants coming to the U.S. without a credit history. Mm. And um, interestingly, well, one really interesting th thing to me, initially I thought the plan would be, you can get a $100 phone and pay for it $10 a month. Right. We offered a $100 phone and a $200 phone, and everyone took the $200 phone. Oh, really? Nobody yeah. got the $100 phone. And we added the 300 the 400 the 500 the 600 all the way up to the kind of flagship model. Right. And uh, What did you find? It, yeah. it balanced out around, uh, around people buying a, a $500 to $600 phone. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing, when we did some customer interviews in that first year, we found, um, like I remember one customer who is a, a restaurant cook, a recent immigrant, um, I assume earning, you know, minimum wage approximately, mm -hmm. um, buying this high-end $600 phone. And actually, surprisingly to me, we offered a three-month to a 12-month term. Uh, and this guy did not choose the 12-month, which would have been the lowest payments mm -hmm. because we really wanted to be pro-consumer and, and and not a predatory lender. So we, we show people the total cost of financing. Yeah. And of course, the longer you take credit, the more you're paying in, in finance charges. Mm. And so this guy chose, I think, the, the three month, you know, oh, interesting. something well, interesting. like, you know, 200 something, 200, 200, um, yeah. which was relatively a lot of money, it seemed like, yeah. but just not 600 all at once. Right. Yeah. That, that point I just mentioned that was really surprising to me was that even minimum wage people in the U.S. could afford that high value phone if they could pay for it over time. Mm. And we found people actually being uh, quite responsible financial consumers. And a big piece for us of being a, a pro-consumer company is making sure we're not getting people in more you know, debt than they can afford, essentially. Uh, and so that actually led us to our second key technology, the first one being mobile security, so we could lock the phone, right. mm -hmm. kind of have this enforcement mechanism, and the yeah. second one being uh, data science for risk analysis. Oh. So initially this thing was... Um, you know, kind of the average unit economics were basically break even. So, you know, if we lent to five people, $500 each, and one of them uh, defaulted, that basically wiped out all our profit on the other four. Then we had an intern, actually, the, the first summer we had interns um, build this simple uh, statistical model uh, using, it, we, we took about, we took three different forms of identity, a, a government ID card, an online account, Mm -hmm. um, and a phone number, and we verified these. Mm -hmm. But then this intern pulled about 250 points of metadata as kind of secondary data from those, from third-party sources and, and interesting connections, threw this into the statistics learning model, and uh, it could identify, uh, it could predict customer behavior in advance. Oh, interesting. And so between, we kind of bucketed. Which is pretty crucial amazing, to understanding yeah. what your, how many bad players you can take on without compromising the profit objectives for the for the good ones right yeah and and so really the way we use that now is trying to identify what is the correct amount of credit 
we can offer to somebody that they can afford. So now, um, oh. you know, if customer number five, we try to approve everybody, um, but figure out what's the right amount of credit. So if we have reason to believe this person can successfully repay $100 instead of 500 we would love to lend that person $100, let them successfully repay it. We can earn a, you know, a small margin on that. Mm-hmm. Um, they build their credit history, which is really important. Um, they can come back to PayJoy and get you know, a larger next yeah. value next year. And we have actually our, our first customer ever has now come back three times. Wow. And is on his, his third phone with PayJoy. Over what time horizon? Uh, we... uh, once a year. Wow. Cool. Once, over a year. once a year. That's amazing. So step back from the trees. Let's talk about um, the business as a kind of a, as a general um, profile. I mean, how, how long has it been around? How many employees do you have? How much money have you raised? Where are you located? Yeah, get us started on that. Yeah. So founded in 2015, uh, raised about $30 million in, in different forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll come back to that, by the way, because I find that intriguing. But go ahead. Yeah. 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 Uh, about 80, <laughs> 80 people worldwide. 80 employees? 80 employees worldwide. Wow. Um, about 30 in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another five in the U.S., about uh, 35 in Mexico. We're about, about to Mexico. 10, uh, Mexico City. Okay. Yeah. And about 10 around the world. Wow. So you're, you're, on a growth, you're on a serious growth path based on a, 50, a $30 million raise. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. But things have changed. Yeah. I mean, maybe I can mention kind of the international yeah. direction. Yeah, please. Yeah. Please. So this was, um, again, it was, we had to start, uh, I think, I think this was the only way to get started was to build it ourselves, show an MVP working right. uh, and, and kind of proof of concept, put our money where our mouth was. So some of that 30 million is, is debt capital that, that goes out to the customers and comes back earning a positive return, like a kind of like a lending operation. Basically, based on seeing all these Mexican immigrants um, in the U.S. needing this service, we kind of followed them back to Mexico. Oh, wow. And we found in Mexico, this is a problem for you know, 80% of the population. Wow. Most people do not have access to uh, good financing to get smartphones or, or other things. And so we set up in Mexico uh, at the end of 2016 mm-hmm. and really saw a great product market fit there. Uh, I'd say even better than the U.S. And based on the success of that over the next year, we started saying yes to all these international opportunities. Uh, and so in the last year have launched in Indonesia, wow. uh, India, Africa, uh, Brazil looks super promising. And so to me, this is really coming to the, the core of what PayJoy is about. The mission being here are these billions of people in emerging markets today who don't have access to modern smartphone technology, yeah. apps, internet, financial services, and they're kind of getting left behind yeah. in the 20th century. And it's really a trick that we can uh, you know, bring mobile security and data science to bear to get them access to their yeah. phone and say, welcome to the 21st century. Right. To me, that's that's the heart of what PageWise is all so about. That's so meaningful because it's basically when we all talk about or hear about the gap that's widening, whether it's in education and access or technology, you're basically, I mean, you're effectively closing the gap. So everybody, so that maybe the playing field could be a little more even and the access a little more consistent. I'm, I'm intrigued by this. When you move into an, it's, it's a pick Mexico City mm-hmm. and you were just talking about you've got two things going for you. One is this chip that embeds in the phone and basically enforces, it, it highly incentivizes payments on a timely basis. And then the second piece is this, is this metadata piece where you, you, you dive into a, a factual component of identification and related um, data that surrounds that. And you can ev- effectively, you can evaluate the credit worthiness of a customer 
but I assume that when you jump from Redwood City down to Mexico City, you must have a completely different statistical model. And all your psycho psychological analyses that you use to optimize for customer traction changes from country to country, doesn't it? Or not? Uh, yes and no. Uh, half of it, <laughs> I think we've got that answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a non-answer. Uh, half of it, I'd say, gets left behind, and it's things that are specific to the U.S. For example, you know, we have, uh, you know, the, the FICO credit score in the U.S. Right. is an established thing with doesn't work in history. Mexico. Right. Yeah. It, it just doesn't exist. It doesn't carry over. However, some of these deeper understandings that you know we're very fortunate we have some smart risk and data people. What I love are these ones where. If they've figured something out about consumer behavior in Mexico City that carries over to Jakarta, Indonesia, that carries over to Bangalore, India, that carries over to Johannesburg, South Africa, to me that is the gold mine. That is yes, that is that absolutely is cool stuff. Yeah. 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 And and there are some of these things. I mean, some of it is around um, you know, the the financial structure, some of it is anti fraud. There's yeah. there's tons of really interesting stuff in there um that I think we've starting to make that international pattern, connection. Yeah. yeah. Is there a consistency, for example, you're saying earlier um, before the break about the devices that's selected or you can predict, you were saying you can predict actually what a customer will choose at least the first time around. Have you seen that kind of, well, I guess there must be some consistency if you're identifying a pattern. Is that true internationally as well? Yeah. I mean, we're really in the first year of these international mm. launches now Got it. beyond okay. Mexico. Okay. Uh, but Absolutely, that's the direction we're looking. Got it. How challenging is it to jump from, I mean, again, I'm picking Redwood City. I'm, I live in Menlo Park right next to it, so I know what you're talking about. Jumping from Redwood City to Mexico City, that sounds like, I mean, it's putting aside the geography, it sounds like a quantum leap because it's a completely different market. There may be commonalities in terms of human psychology, but it's a completely different market, different compliance requirements. Um it just seems to me like it's 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 not an inconsequential exercise to expand the way you just described, Doug, to going from, you know, the United States and suddenly you're in six countries and in, in all within the first year of product launch. Is that do I have that about right? Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you, we were super fortunate. We had a, a working grad Mexican to uh, launch Mexico Yay. for us. So that's, <laughs> that, that is the secret there. there that was, that was awesome. Yeah. All right, we're done with okay, this program. Thank you for joining right, us. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, it was a huge leap. Um, and, you know, we just started slow and small mm -hmm. and went from there. But I, I think, um, you know, in, in lending, you have to, my view is you have to be a little bit cautious at the beginning. Mm. And so uh, in both the U.S. and Mexico, we are the financial company too. We we supply the capital that goes to the customers and comes back with a positive yield. And so, you know, we want to be careful because we lose money if people don't pay. Right. And there are probably lending requirements too, right? I'm, I'm certain in the United States there are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have to get the regulatory compliance right yeah. in addition right. to the raising capital. Now, as we go internationally, this is another one of those things that I thought you know, we could have started with a pure partnership model and just done technology license, but we started by doing the financing ourselves internationally. Now we're actually not acting as the finance company. Mm -hmm. We're partnering with a local bank or consumer credit mm -hmm. financial company and a mobile phone retailer, uh, and we're the the software platform. So, the so explain that to me. Just clarify what what is the component that you're licensing? What's the technology that you're licensing? Yeah. So we have. Really, our two key technologies being the mobile security. Okay, that we can that's one. We can strongly yeah. lock the phones. Our data science, 
Oh, for that's, predicting that's risk. the other component. I see. Yeah. And and there's also this platform that ties it all together. Where so, so it's automated. People will. I mean, is it? There's an automation component. If I'm looking to buy a smartphone, I I go to your website first. There's. I mean, walk me through it. There's a questionnaire I fill out, and then you come back after some period of time and say you're financing approved. Yeah. So let's go to maybe our our most typical customer. You are the customer. You're living in the Yucatan Peninsula okay. of Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in a suburb of Merida, the capital. And you go to your local uh, mobile phone store, and you walk in, and the clerk tells you, hey, we have a new program. You can actually pay for a phone in weekly installments. This is the way to get a phone. And this is fantastic because, uh, you know, you walked in there, you had, you know, 100 bucks in your pocket. You were prepared to get a $100 phone. But now you could afford the $200 phone if you want or the $300 phone because you'll be paying 10 or $20 a month. Or you you walked in there with you know fifty dollars you're going to get that flip phone. Now you can afford you know a well functioning okay, Android yeah. phone. And so typically you will register the the clerk will help register you as a customer, mm-hmm. which is verifying your identity ver- verification documents. And then you'll pick your phone. You'll pick your term three months, six months, twelve months. Uh, they will install the PageRoy software on the phone. It, they will do explain, it right there on site. They'll do it yeah. there. They'll explain mm-hmm. clearly. I want you to understand what you're doing here. If you don't pay, the phone will lock and you can't use it. Uh, and we've approved them. PayJoy has online instantly approved yeah. how much credit we're going to offer the customer. Are we offering them $500 credit or $100 credit? And uh, they can walk out of there in half an hour. And yeah. I mean, just to ask the blunt question, because there's a, I'll just ask the question. I don't want <laughs> to editorialize. Yeah, please. But you, you know, you're so, on the one, the, the reason why what you're offering is a benefit is because under any other circumstance, that customer in the Yucatan P- Peninsula wouldn't be able to afford a smartphone at all. Mm-hmm. So you're, I mean, the, you know, the p- potential criticism is you're walking that customer down the yellow brick road, which is we can enable you to purchase a phone that under any other circumstances, well beyond your financial means to, to pay. And the way we're going to do that is by offering you a finance plan that over some period of time at so many dollars a week. Is, is there, I guess my question is, is there a, is, 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 that a, is, that a, is that a reasonable package that you're offering? Yeah. Are we overselling them? Yeah, they, I'm, they shouldn't I'm, get I'm that. I'm picking they my words carefully. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I've heard this a hundred times. Okay. Are we selling them too much phone? Yeah. Are we getting them lost in debt yeah. more than they can afford? Thank like, why do Thank they you. need that phone? Couldn't they settle for this phone? Thank right. you. That yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Right. So there, there are a bunch of things that address this. And um, it's interesting. One of the times this came up, or this has come up, for example, when we do uh, venture capital funding and we're you know, figuring out who we want to work with and what they care about. Um, and it's really important to us to be a, a pro-consumer company and we're helping people get ahead, helping them climb the economic ladder. Yeah. I mean, so, that's, that's the that's social benefit of the company. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there are a few nuances to how we do this that are consistent with that. And I think avoid some of those pitfalls that you could very easily fall into. Mm. Uh, so I mentioned in the U.S. and Mexico when we got started, we are the financing wing of this thing too. So if that customer does not pay back, if they cannot afford to pay back, we lose our money. So we don't want to finance somebody 500 bucks and have them, if that's more than they can afford, they're going to default. Right. They're going to throw the phone in the trash. So there's a natural governor built into the system. Yeah. Yeah. And what we're looking for is what's the right amount we can finance somebody that they can successfully pay back. They build their credit score. We're in a profit. They climb the economic ladder. And then some of the, the details of how we do this thing. So, for example, our customers um, are not technically in debt. It's, it's technically not lending and they're technically not in debt. 
in, in the U.S., we use this form called a retail installment contracts uh, or, or rent to own. They're paying for, they're making a purchase and they're paying right. over time. On a weekly basis. Yeah. yeah. If they want to, they can hand back the device and walk away completely clean, uh, no debt. Right. Everything is fine on their record. We're not going to come after them. Just bring back the phone. Um, That's a good point. And so, you know, this, this came up with actually our, our, our series A uh, lead investors, a couple of the partners were kind of on the fence. Oh, we're not sure if this is, is it just like a high cost lending thing, like taking money yeah. from poor people? And this was one of those things that I think helped get it across the line was, you know, really looking at these edge cases and making sure that in all cases we're helping the customer get ahead right. and never weighing them down. Well, that's a really good point. So when you mentioned, Doug, about here in the States, for example, so if I walk into a Verizon store that's not necessarily in uh, maybe a market in, in the center of town versus a different community, there are probably people just in the center of town who fall into that category of folks who may not be able to, um, may not otherwise be able to access that kind of a, like a, a modern phone or maybe a more advanced phone. Is that something where we would find Pageway in, you know, in the center of town versus other um, neighborhoods, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. You can find uh, Pageway works with mobile phone retailers all across the U.S. Got it. Okay. And those partnerships, are you? Are those partnerships, if I walked in today, would I be able to, could I ask the question? Like, I, I'd like to get a phone, but this is what I can handle. And would they be able to tell me, well, there's this um, Pageway could be an option for you? Yeah, and, and it depends on whether you have a prime credit score. Right. Then they'll already serve you on their kind of mainstream platform. Mm-hmm. But for people who don't, uh, this is really the difference for them in being able to afford a phone or not. Right. Well, there are, you know, with the, you know, young folks having phones right now, we're having this conversation at the break. Is this something, well, for a credit score, is there a minimum age where you must be able to demonstrate you have the financial means or wherewithal or knowledge to be able to start learning how to handle your finances through a program like this, in addition to access for the 30% who would not otherwise have access? Yeah. So we have a minimum age requirement of 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, regulatory compliance does vary okay. state to state in the U.S. and in Mexico and, and abroad. Uh, but definitely it's something nice we can do if we can help people. That is, there is a category of people, say, 18 to 20, uh, who have no credit score because they just started yeah. kind of entering this, this economy. Uh, and absolutely, that's a, a market for us. A great so I wonder if I can shift gears. I, you know, I, I always like to get into the financing of a company because I do believe, you know, when you bring in outside investors, it is suddenly the, I mean, simply put, the stakes go up. You've got professionals looking steely-eyed at you as the CEO, Doug, expecting performance that the company is going to project forward more or less along the lines that you've described that it would. So you've raised $31 million bucks to date, something like that, both mm-hmm. debt and equity. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an interesting combination. You did a seed round. You did a debt round. Uh, you did a, a uh, convertible note, followed by a Series A financing. And in that mix, you've got your seed round had 24 people, so you've got a bunch of individuals in it. And then you've got institutional VCs, and you've got strategic investors who represent companies around the world. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think there's just about everything in your, in your capital structure. Is there a reason? I mean, I don't want to dive into each component, but is there a fundamental reason why you can, you'd kind of – it's almost like you're picking out these investors on an eclectic basis. I don't know. I'm just – I'm trying to connect dots and wanted to see how you think about this. Yeah. I mean, the seed round with, with those, you know, 24 um, kind of angels and, and small funds was just, uh, 
Being, opportunistic. Yeah, it was just opportunistic. You know, there was like a Stanford Angels meeting, and right. I, it was full. I couldn't even get in. And I, I remember having this phone call with my wife in the car saying, oh, man, I wonder if I should just go and try and sneak in the back or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she was like, just go, but, you know, go in the front door, and if they stop you, you can just go out. Go out. I'm like, okay, all right. And I, you know, <laughs> steeled myself for it. I came in, walked in. Oh, man, someone came at me with a, a clipboard. And, you know, do you have your ticket? And I said, oh, no, sorry. I, I, actually, I, I didn't get a ticket. It said it was full. And she said, oh, no problem. You're sign, in. Sign here. Uh, right. And so I got And, you know, three of those 24 came from that, oh, that wow. angel meeting, yeah. right? Wow. And, you know, cool. some of my, you know, most <laughs> trusted advisors. Wow. Um, so that was really the scrappy side. As far as the, the different, but you know, the different... Uh, forms of, we actually have taken, in addition to kind of um, more traditional equity, mm -hmm. uh, venture debt, as well as pure debt funding and convertibles have worked pretty well for us. Um, we did the seed raise as a convertible note using the Y Combinator safe note. Mm -hmm. And this was really our our, our first uh, lead seed investor who wrote that first $300,000 check, mm -hmm. you know, had this kind of standard package. It's a safe with a, you know, $4 million cap or something, take yeah, it or leave it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's simple. Um, and then what I liked about that was there were no lawyers. And so for everybody else, we just said, yeah, this is what we do. We do a safe note, yeah. fill in the valuation here right. and fill in the amount. Yeah. And actually we're still doing that today. Occasionally we run into a strategic investor, somebody, um, you know, in Brazil who can help us go to market in Brazil. And I say, yeah, we're not doing a full financing round right now. We actually have enough cash, but right. let's get involved together. You know, fill in the safe note, how much you want to put in and figure out the valuation and no lawyers. So it, it just, it's, I mean, I, I love our lawyers. <laughs> Who knows if they're listening, but, um, you know, it just saves everybody's it's time. Efficiency, yeah. yeah. Right. As far as the debt. So we did both venture debt that took me a while to learn about and yeah. um, kind of more traditional debt. Um, the venture debt, as I came to understand, is really leverage on equity. And, you know, when I had studied finance, uh, just in my, you know, one class or, or two classes in, in school, you know, it, it can be a useful way to fund a company with a mix of equity and debt. Right. And it lets us, I think, optimize the valuation on the equity because um, if we can use that debt and if the, you know, interest payments are less than the cost of dilution that we would pay with extra equity, I think we can, we can optimize how much equity we give away um, based on, you know, future cash flows. Mm -hmm. um, now for the, the, but I think of that really as equity, just kind of a different structure of yeah, equity, for sure. leverage right, equity. Right, yeah. right. The debt itself, um, we've set up separate special purpose vehicles mm. that we've raised debt into from separate investors. And that money goes to fund customer contracts in the U.S. or Mexico. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, we lend $100 to the customer. They pay back 110 That $10 profit accrues in the special purpose vehicle. I get it. A portion of it pays out interest to the investors. A wow. portion is the spread to Pedro. So skipping forward, we only have a couple minutes left. I wonder, so how's it going so far? I'm looking at you as the CEO and founder of a company that has, you know, a board of directors with uh, serious money that's invested in the company. You've got 80 employees and you have a... An, International it, it, presence. <laughs> yeah. How's it going? It's super exciting. Pretty scary, but... Uh, Do you like what you're doing? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like there is no substitute for waking up in the morning and believing in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. For me, I, you know, can't imagine going back to anything else. Do you sleep at night? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I, have a, I have a newborn baby and a four-year-old. So, oh, that, golly, yeah. so life is full. Life is yeah. full. I mean, the, the one thing I would ask, I mean, this is, um, I just think there's a terribly personal component to being the CEO and founder of an early stage company. And you're living it. And so I just, 
you know, there, there must be moments of despair where you're thinking, oh, my God, I just don't think this is going to go. I mean, do you ever have those bleak moments where you're thinking, shit, this, this could go south in a hurry? You know, we've been pretty fortunate the last two years, uh, haven't had any of those crazy moments. Well, actually, I think one of them happened. I was on paternity leave for a month <laughs> in uh, April, um, and basically I told him, don't call me unless, you know, something's on fire. Yeah. Like, majorly. Yeah. And they called me. There was an incompatibility with Android 8. And basically I listened and said, that sounds tough. Good luck. Wow. And I didn't know if, I had a, if I'd have a company to come back to. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but yeah. fortunately I did. So that, things things wait. have worked out then. Yeah, and I think that's been a real um, learning area for me is around delegating and yeah. trusting people. So I'm, I'm really fortunate being able to recruit some fantastic people who I can rely on and believe there's nothing I could do that they couldn't do and wow. just trust. That's great. We are out of time. I knew this was going to happen. An hour has come by, kind of gone. Doug, thanks for joining us. It's been uh, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.